I think that at the core of branding, at the core of marketing, if you don't know who you are, you will chase fads. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Welcome to another edition of Predicting the Turn. Today, I am joined with Jason White, who is the new Chief Marketing Officer of Select, one of the most exciting brands and one of the more interesting consumer products out there. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. Happy to be here. Well, I want to start really quick for anybody that might not be familiar with Select as the brand. Can you uh, give the quick high level of who Select is? Sure. I think to to those not aware of the cannabis space, we're we're the biggest brand you've never heard of. Um, we started in Portland, Oregon. We are a West Coast brand focused mainly on um, all oil products, so vapes, gummies, cartridges, and we were recently sold for a billion dollars to Cure Leaf, who is a East Coast and medicinal-based provider. They have retail stores, and they are really vertically integrated. And by vertically integrated, I mean they grow and sell their own product. We are the opposite of that. We are a West Coast recreational brand. We source our oils in most cases and have a process of distillation and safety checking and pesticide testing that makes it our own. We have a process of adding our own special ingredients known to the layman as terpenes that make it um, a unique blend that we sell. But we are recreationally based. We sell in 900 dispensaries. We're in Oregon, Nevada, Arizona, um, going into Michigan, uh, going into Colorado. So we're, we're a big West Coast brand, California number one. So that's the biggest brand you've never heard of in cannabis. Awesome. I love it. Well, let's, uh, I want to dive in and start a little bit about your career because your career has been working on big brands that everybody knows about right now. So you, you started your career on the agency side, working at Saatchi & Saatchi, then BDO, and that was doing classic CPG brands, things like Tide and M&Ms. What did you learn about the fundamentals of brand building during those years on, uh, on those massive CPG brands? Well, you know... I was 12 years old and I said, I want to make Nike ads. I just love, I'm a Michael Jordan generation kid. And fortunately for me, I got really good advice in college. And the advice I got was, if you learn packaged goods marketing, you'll always have a job. And rather than sprint into the more creative side of advertising and rather than running towards the Nike brand, I went to New York and my first job was a media planner on Procter & Gamble. I was media planning Safeguard Soap in a test market in Colorado Springs. And uh, I also worked on Cascade Dishwashing Detergent. And then I got my first move into account management on Pepsi AC and other brands for J&J. And then ultimately went on to manage a lot of the Tide business. And I think what I learned from there is just the real nuts and bolts of how to ballot out, how to fight for a share point, how to, you know, understanding what a coupon drop does to your revenue, understanding how the battle takes place at shelf, understanding how you have to communicate product benefits, understanding just the nuts and bolts of how business moves. And for me, it's critically important because I think when I got to like Wyden and Kennedy, for example, I had the toolkit and then it was just a matter of which tools do I not want to use? What do I want to throw away? 
to add room for creativity, add room for emotion, add room for storytelling. I love that. Well, it's funny you got that advice when you were in college because I got uh, the same thing. It's why I ended up at P&G was I was working in the music industry and they said, don't sell the fun stuff, go sell the boring stuff. And that's how you learn what marketing really is. Exactly. When you actually have to work hard at it. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, you, you were doing that stuff, but then you got to be the Nike kid and you moved over to White and Kennedy, uh, where you had a nearly decade long run leading the Nike business and having not one, but actually two stints over in China. So in the world of brand and agency partnerships, you know, there really isn't much of a tighter relationship than the one that exists between Wyden and Nike. What was that like working on that? And especially knowing it was the, the childhood dream as a 12 year old. It was everything I hoped it would be, to be very honest. And, you know, it was, it was a little jarring at first when I got to Portland, I was 28 years old and it was my first kind of management level job. And there was a lot of turmoil on the Nike business. Phil Knight had just essentially gone to the role of, of uh, chairman emeritus. There was a big management shakeup and there was a lot of uncertainty as to kind of where the brand would go next. And it, I think widening Kennedy kind of took the brunt of that. And then the questions became, well, is widening Kennedy a part of our future? And I think as we've seen from, from that day in 2006 till now, the answer was yes. And a large part of that was because Nike had to go to China. This was, this was late 2005. Nike knew they had roughly three years until the Beijing Olympics, and they hadn't really solidified the meaning of just do it. They hadn't even really launched just do it in that marketplace. And when I found out that that was the opportunity, I instantly raised my hand and said, send me to China. I want to go do that. I want to go tell, I want, I want to go back in time. I want to go to 1987 and launch Just Do It. And it was absolutely that. It was a time of probably my favorite professional experience where, you know, everyone there, whether you were expat, whether you were local, we all had one common dream, one common expectation. And, you know, the time was, was limited. We had roughly two and a half years from the time I got there in May of 2006 to get to August 8th, 2008, Beijing Olympics. And it took everything we had, everything we knew, every trick, every standard to bring to life a sport culture and to tell the, the, the stories of old, but also create legends of new, like Liu Shang, like Li Na, um, people who went on to become the heroes of, of the um, Chinese sports scene. And there were no boundaries. It was creative agency, media agency, client. There, there were no boundaries. We were all in it together. And it was just a, a, an amazing experience about what it must have been like the first 20 years of the relationship. So it's really interesting. You mentioned that, you know, the time was short with those two and a half years, because I was actually in the room when Wyden was pitching Procter & Gamble on uh, taking over their Olympics business, the, which ultimately became the amazing Thank You Mom campaign and everything else. And I'll never I was in that meeting. Yeah. And it was them saying, you guys were late. Like, you have to get going. You know what was funny about that meeting? And, you know, Dave uh, Lore, who is the president of, of Wyden, he did an amazing thing in that meeting. And if you recall, it was the first slide of the deck. The first slide of the deck was a copy of the Wall Street Journal from August 19th, 2008, 
which was the day the Olympics ended. And on the right-hand column of that cover page of the Wall Street Journal, it said who won and who lost the battle of the Olympics. And it was it judged all the marketers of the Olympics. And Dave flipped to that slide and he said, I just want you to know the world is watching. <laughs> it was the first time Proctor was going into an Olympics and they were about to become the official battery of the Olympics, the official diaper of the Olympics, the official, you know, shampoo of the Olympics. And and we were there to tell and to helpfully discuss and explain that that's not wins in Olympics. That's not what wins in Olympics. It's about the emotion, the higher order benefit, the storytelling. And and that ultimately led to thank you, mom. And um, I was really excited to have been a part of it, at least the beginning of that process, because I had just come off of the Nike Beijing Olympics. And to be able to sort of share that knowledge and, and be a part of that conversation was really powerful. Oh, it was, it was amazing. I still use that as probably the best example of a pitch I've ever seen in my life. And it was one that was won on that first slot. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. incredible. Yeah, it was awesome. Talking that after a great run kind of on that agency side, you did what a lot of folks want to do and you jumped over to the brand side, but you didn't just go jump on any brand. You went and jumped onto Beats by Dre. Uh, you know, that's a company that was always pushing culture and arguably took out over the mantle in some ways that Nike had at one point. But, you know, culture is a funny thing. You know, you can be on the bleeding edge and then you can be in a lot of trouble because of culture. So how do you think as a marketer and a leader, you balance embracing culture without, you know, the, the razor's edge cutting you, if you will? I think that at the core of branding, at the core of marketing, if you don't know who you are, you will chase fads. You will let celebrities, you will let moments, you will let all of the things that create culture, you will let those things shape your brand. You will let those things shape your narrative. You let those things shape your voice. And then you become victim to whatever those things do next. If you look at Nike, if you look at Beats, we worked with some pretty polarizing figures, you know, whether it's Cam Newton, you know, um, Kaepernick, like a lot of folks, Serena, who, who have been polarizing. And for us, it was never a risk because we knew who we were and we knew what we stood for. And that was why we knew why we were standing with them. And that allowed us to choose the right moments, choose the right thing to say, know when to speak up, know when to let them sort of stand on their own because that's not our agenda or that's not, you know, why that's not what our relationship represents. Or sometimes it's just not our point of view, but it was really about making sure we understood who we were and then the roadmap is revealed to you because you're making decisions not based on what's happening in culture or what's cool or what's next. You're making your decision based on what do we stand for and is this the right platform we want to go speak from. Talent is a big part of predicting the turn. And as we talk about talent, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Hunt Club. Imagine the power of the best marketers in the world helping you to find your next marketing leader. That's the power of Hunt Club. Hunt Club is a new category of talent company that powers the network of experts, connectors, and business leaders to help you find the best talent. Let's face it, recruiting hasn't changed with the times. Hunt Club is changing the recruiting game by leveraging technology and crowdsource referrals to find you the best people possible for your company. Stop paying job boards that don't work or recruiting firms that recycle the same active candidates. 
partner with Hunt Club. So you mentioned those amazing celebrities that you worked with at Beats, and obviously Nike had just one or two pretty big celebrities you worked with as well. Not only do you, how do you align what you just discussed, but how do you avoid being overshadowed by the celebrity and people remembering the brand that was behind it? At Beats, we had a very clear rule. You never start an idea with the talent. You start an idea with an idea. And that way, you're never at the mercy of the talent. It's not an idea because it only works if you use Serena Williams or it only works if you use, I don't know, DJ Mustard. It's, it's an idea because it's a great idea. And it's an idea because it's central to who we are as a brand. Then if, if you don't like the terms you're getting from a certain DJ or you don't like the terms you're getting from, a, from an athlete, you can find another athlete that fits the idea and that fits the story. And obviously, there are still some just mega, mega moments where it's either that athlete or it's nothing. And we kind of work through those. And, and luckily, we work with the best athletes in the world who were amazing partners. But generally, we never started with the talent. We never started with the song. We always started with the idea. That's a great lesson. So I want to talk about another lesson that you, you've shared that you learned from your time at Beats. And that was when you actually announced that you were leaving. You did a great Instagram post where you said, you know, the first list lesson I learned at Beats was very simple. It's not about you. And you went on to talk about that that was about the team and everything that was built. What's interesting with that is you're working for a company where the founder's name was in the name of the business. And we've been in a culture that really celebrates that solo founder, the Elon Musk, the Steve Jobs, the Mark Zuckerberg. So why do you think those companies are just business as a whole might be missing the power of the team when we celebrate the individual? Well, I think you have to separate the marketing from the machine, right? Still, those are incredible minds you just mentioned. And a lot of those minds have driven a, a, a generation of innovation, a generation of evolution, like truly you know, in the past hundred years, changing culture, changing ideas type people. But I think when you think about the marketing, it comes back to how do you pull the values and the foundational truths out of that person and also out of that company and build on those. And I think the best example of that was when Michael Jordan retired. You know, Brent Jordan had, was not ready to lose Michael Jordan. And all of a sudden, what's Brent Jordan without Michael Jordan on the basketball court? And that was really when we had to start thinking about, you know, be, be the brand, not the man, you know? And I think now when you look at the world of social media influencers and all these things, it's so fickle. It changes so fast. Now, when you're talking about a Dr. Dre, a Jimmy Iovine, a, a, um, a Steve Jobs, these are these are stalwarts. These are cultural icons. So there's still tremendous value in what they do. But I think the value in what they do, or I should say, the value in who they are, is in what they do. They are iconic thinkers, and they push innovation and they push cultural norms. And you know what you pull out of that is. The, the, the stubbornness to the point of perfection or perfection to the point of stubbornness. And like, you can pull lessons out of there and you can build brands on those lessons. You can storytell on those lessons. You know, 
LeBron going back to Cleveland, that's a story about LeBron, but it's really a story about just going home to accept your decisions and to move forward and to ask people to move forward with you and to be proud of your roots and to elevate your hometown, you know, straight out of Compton. We didn't do straight out of Compton in a way to make it about celebrating Compton. The insight into straight out of Compton as the, the largest social media meme of all time, the insight there was we're all proud of our roots. And when you can accept where you're from and you can claim where you're from, it's absolutely empowering. So Strata Compton wasn't exciting because it was about Compton. It was exciting because it was about where you are from and you owning that and you celebrating that and you elevating that. And that's, I think, at the core of working with these icons. It's pulling out what they stand for, what they do, and making that foundational to what you say as a brand. I love that. That's so true. So I want to move over uh, to the the next journey that you're in. And you talked about being the one of the biggest brands that maybe some people don't realize what's how big it actually is. So when you announced that you were leaving and you made this move, you talked to Adweek about how you know the cannabis cannabis space is where the world world is going to have to go next. And you've had an amazing career where you've been at brands that constantly seem to have a mirror that allows them to see around corners, to see what's next, to see where culture's headed. And as you mentioned, it's all about knowing who you are. What else have you really learned about seeing around corners and guiding where companies and businesses and brands need to be placing their bets for 6, 12, 24 months from now? You know, I think it, it wasn't until I had to really soul search about this decision to walk away from Apple and to walk away from everything that was comfortable and and just just normal to me. It wasn't until I had to really soul search about why I was making that decision when I realized kind of what you just said, which was, you know, moving to China in 2006 was early, you know, getting to Beats before Apple kind of jumped on it was was was, you know, relatively early. And now getting to cannabis is, is, is relatively early. And I think that, I think part of it is just as a marketer, I just crave sort of kind of white spaces and what's next. And I think that's part of being in love with culture because it's like, it's culture, in my opinion, is like when, when, when people say something and stand for something that causes us all to shift, right? Whether that's a, a song, like what Chavez Gambino did last year, whether that's a, uh, a point of view, whether that's a moment in sport, it's like you cause the world to 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 move in another direction, and I think that's what I would say I've learned about you know watching that happen three times now is you know you have to be you have to be comfortable in not having the proof that it's going to work. You have to be comfortable with your gut. You have to be comfortable that you vetted this with the people who've done this in the past, you've vetted this with, you know, whether that's the Pharrell's or the, or the LeBron's or the Jimmy's or whomever, like you've got to learn at some point that there, this is not math. This is not one plus one equals two. This is instinct. This is gut. This is being surrounded by the people who have successfully done it in the past and then leaning into it. And I think one of the things that I learned a lot about, you're going to be the one to try to push these cultural moments. You're going to be the one that thinks you can actually shift the map and tilt the globe. Then it has to be something you put 
all of your resources together. You cannot part of the way go in because you're nervous or because you're you're not sure. And I have a perfect example of where I did that incorrectly. You know, when we launched our holiday campaign two years ago at Beats, or maybe even three years ago now, we had a scene with a kid wearing a Colin Kaepernick jersey. And this is before Nike did all of their stuff. This is, this is eight months before Nike did what they did. And I was nervous about that scene. So I didn't PR the story around the launch of that spot. I didn't PR the fact that we were taking a stand way before anyone else around the fact that Colin Kaepernick was being mistreated. And I think we told a beautiful film that holiday that really addressed a lot of what was going on in culture around the Me Too movement, the racism in America, that we, we really touched on some important themes. And because I didn't put every single gun against that, because I didn't shine every light, use every tool I had in the toolbox, that never took off. It was a message that never really landed that holiday season. And I think it's one of the most beautiful things we ever made as a brand. So the lesson for me was so clear in that you don't move culture by being half-assed about it. You got to risk everything, put everything against it, and you have to push. So you know, what you just talked about is an entrepreneurial mindset. And that's tough for a lot of you know, leaders of big companies and big brands to embrace. I mean, you grew up in a world where you were testing, you're con- doing your concept test. And if it didn't get a top quartile, you didn't get to air that spot. So how do you get yeah. other brands? <laughs> I did not miss those days. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you make that shift? How do you get somebody comfortable with, no, you have to be all in because winning is no longer in the middle. It's at the edge of the barbells today. Look, I, some people move that way. Some people don't. And I think to, to anyone who might be listening to this thing is you got to know when it's time to find a new room. You know, I left Saatchi and Saatchi. I loved my time there, but I left because we made a beautiful campaign for Tide. It didn't test well and Tide killed it like weeks before it was supposed to launch. And I was 25, 26. And I knew at that point, I said, if this is the room I'm in where great work dies because of a test score after a year of positioning work and six months of creative work, this is not the room I want to be in. And I went to the entire other end of the spectrum. I went to BBDO where everyone said, don't be an account guy at BBDO. All you're going to do is carry bags. You don't, you know, they don't respect you. It's just creatively led. And I said, that's exactly what I want. I want to know, can I go survive in that place? And is that place going to fight for great work? And that's where I met Susan Cradle. And that's where I got, you know, every education in fighting for work and listening to your gut and, and pushing back and not believing in test scores, but believing in, you know, humanity and energy and what you feel. And, you know, Susan taught me all of that. So at some point, it's not my job to teach people how to do this. You know what I mean? If, if you want to do it your way, go do it your way. And you can, you can run boring brands. You can run average brands. But what we try to do, it's like, it requires to like let some of that stuff go and 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 take risks and like believe in something i love that so that's i think a perfect tee up to the last question why i ask which is at nike and at beats you had the honor of standing on the the shoulders of giants you know people that had built amazing iconic brands and now in your new journey you get to be part of growing that iconic brand and you're taking a business that, like you said, is amazing in terms of what it's done, but now you can take it to that next level. 
how do you think about the the challenge between those two of preserving an icon and building an icon? They're very different tasks in so many ways, but it's one continuum, you know. I'm very grateful for having started in the space. And I really think about, you know, in terms of working a big cultural brands, I think about being 28 years old and getting to White and Kennedy. And for me, having had 10, 15 years of watching Nike, Beats, you know, some other iconic brands that were at P&G that were at Widen and Kennedy, you know, understanding how you grow those things over time, but you still are flexible enough to take risks. You still try to move at the speed of culture. You still know who you are. You know, there's no better example of a brand that, that holds on to its truth, its core, core foundational truth than Nike. You know, like if you have a body, you're an athlete, you know, like that's, that's Nike. And that's incredible to be at 20 something billion dollar brand and still think every day you either ran today or you didn't, you know, like those are like, wow, what, a, what an iconic brand. And to have, to have seen that firsthand, to have seen a brand that never forgot who it was, but then continue to try to like be, you know, revolutionary in business and wall street, and all those other things. It's, it's now like trying to go back to the beginning of that timeline and build something, you know, and I feel like I have seen the roadmaps. I have contributed to those roadmaps. I have been a part of that. And now it's like, okay, well, you got to bring a lot of that with you. And some of it you got to do differently because cannabis is like nothing else we've seen so far. This is, we're, we're, we're talking about the end of prohibition and that's the exciting part. And that's, that's the roadmap we don't have. And that's, that's why I left because I want to write that. I love it. Well, I think that is a perfect place to end on. Jason, thank you so much for taking the time. I, it's a pleasure to hear the stories and I can't wait to see the, uh, the journey that you build over the next few years. Thank you. It was great to talk to you and uh, I look forward to connecting soon. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com.